we're going to hear first from one of our patrons, Michelle Bates, who I'm sure you will all be aware ran the highly effective campaign on behalf of her brother, Barry George, who was wrongly convicted of the murder of uh, Jill Dando in 2001. She is going to share with, with us some of the experiences she had from that campaign and some of the lessons that she learned from it. So over to you, Michelle. Thank you, Philip, and thank you, Yvonne, for suggesting that this might be a good idea. Um, so I'm going to start off actually talking about Jeremy, because I have a connection to, to what happened to Jeremy in that, uh, well, let me just set the scene, okay? Um, so if I start with, it was a hot August night, and it actually was the 7th of August, 1985. And I was at home in Cork in Southern Ireland. And my first baby was due right then. Uh, she actually eventually deigned to make her appearance about 10 days later. But I came down to watch TV because I couldn't sleep. I had this big bump that wouldn't stay still. While I was watching TV, there was a news flash and it said that there was a siege at a farmhouse in the UK. Um, at that time, probably people will remember, or some people will remember they're old enough, that we didn't have 24 hour news TV at that time. Um, what I did see, they had some aerial shots over the farmhouse. And you could see in that actually that the police and where they were in their sort of cordon, which was back away from um, the house. Um, I decided anyway that I would stay up for a while. I was watching a bit of drivel on TV. And every now and again, there was an update on the news and I found that very interesting. What they said was, there are five people inside the house. And the son of, of the couple was actually outside with the police and they wouldn't allow him to go near the house. Um, there were media and the media were saying things such as the police won't storm the house at the moment. They don't want to upset the person that they've seen inside walking about upstairs. And I have a feeling I heard something about somebody muttering and walking around with a gun, but I don't, I'm not 100% sure about that bit. But I know that um, they weren't allowed to fly over the house for the same reason. They didn't want to upset the person that they were actually in conversation with inside the house. Uh, apparently, they had been on the phone to somebody and now the phone was off the hook. Well, being nine months pregnant, I got tired eventually. I couldn't stay up any longer, um, so I went off to bed. But obviously, the minute I got up that morning, I rushed down and put the news on. And that was where I heard that the police had stormed the house and that there were five bodies inside, which was very upsetting, as you can imagine. I was really heartbroken about it because I'd hoped that they'd be able to talk the person down, whoever was in there. Anyway, it was called a murder-suicide. Well, I got down to the business of 
giving birth to this rather late little girl and caring for a new baby. And I was so surprised later when I learned that the son was being charged with murder. I couldn't understand it. How did that happen? Well, later um, I heard he'd been found guilty and I really couldn't understand that either. But I accepted that, you know, the police must have had some strong evidence. Otherwise, how could anybody have found him guilty? He was outside. Well, my daughter is now 35 years old. She's had a life. She's married, has a baby of her own. She has a career and a mortgage. All the normal things that we all take for granted. My three children all know about Jeremy because their lives are somehow connected with his and what happened to him. And of course their lives are, are connected to miscarriage of justice because being Irish, they know all about the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four, the Maguire Seven. I mean, our family really know about this stuff. <laughs> but you know, none of us could have foreseen just how intimately our lives would become embroiled in miscarriage of justice. Barry is my brother. His name is Barry George. He was mentally disabled from birth. He has epilepsy, ADHD, Asperger's syndrome, which is a type of autism. He has learning difficulties. And in later years, he acquired some brain damage and it affects his short-term memory. Um, Jill Dando, Jill was killed um, on the 26th of April, 1999. And she was just murdered in cold blood on her doorstep. Um, she lived in Fulham. And actually that's where I was born. And at that time, that was where Barry still lived, was not in the same street, but he lived in Fulham. Now, I was still living in Ireland in 1999, and um, I heard the news when I was getting ready to go to a Bible study. And, you know, I just thought, well, I'll, I'll listen to a little bit of um, the news on the TV, oh, sorry, on the, the radio. And um, I was there at the mirror getting myself ready. Um, I was a student at the time, um, it, it, a mature student, obviously. And um, it was so unusual for me to get a little bit of time to myself that I was really relishing this. And um, the next thing I heard, somebody has been um, arrested for the murder of Jill Dando. And my thought was, hey, great. It's been about a year since that woman was killed. You know, this is so good for her family. And then the next sentence was, his name is Barry Valsara. And that's when I froze. You see, Barry, with all of his mental disabilities, he was a bit of a fantasist and he had chosen the name Valsara for his email address because it was Freddie Mercury's surname and he was crazy about Freddie Mercury. Now, we'd never actually emailed each other, but I knew his email address, and so I was fearful. And then I thought, no, 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 how, don't be so stupid. How on earth could it be your brother? 
but the more I thought about it, the more I knew I had to find out. And there was no way I could contact the radio station and say, hey, you know, can you tell me, is that my brother? You know, because the whole thing just seems totally preposterous. So in the end, I rang my mom in London and I just said to her, mom, can I pray about anything today? Because I'm going to a prayer meeting and, and a Bible study. And she just said, mm, no. And I thought, okay, maybe everything's okay, but I'll push a little harder just to be sure. So I did. And then she said, well, you could pray for your brother. And that's when I knew, and that's when our lives changed forever. I had no experience of the police or of the justice system. In fact, I just believed that, you know, justice um, would be served, that there wouldn't be a problem. Um, but that was a big mistake. You know, the police had their man. They weren't going to look for anybody else. But I really believed I'll get over to London excuse me, I'll get over to London and um, I'll have a talk with everybody and we'll get the whole thing straightened out and they'll realise they've got the wrong man. You know, Barry's not guilty. You know, he, he couldn't have done this thing. But I'm afraid that right from the start, unethical things were happening. Um, I got a phone call at my mum's house and it was from a police officer. And he said to me, um, oh, would you like to come and um, give a character reference for your brother? And I thought, oh, what a good idea. So I said, yeah, I will. I said, but after I just have a chat with his legal team. Oh, he said, yeah, yeah, you know, chat, chat with his legal team first. As soon as I spoke to Barry's legal team, they told me that the only people who would be able to use my character reference for Barry would have been the prosecution and they would have been using it against Barry and they might even have called me into court as a hostile prosecution witness to witness against my brother. So that was where I first learned to be very wary. So Barry actually was convicted in 2001. And we knew obviously that he was not guilty. So there's no justice in that for Barry. There's no justice in that for, for Jill either. So in 2002, actually it was only six months after his conviction, he got his first appeal. It came up and we thought, this is really great. They know they've made a mistake and they're willing to put this right. So that's why it's come up in six months. So you know, it was backwards and forwards from Ireland to the UK for me, leaving my children in Ireland, you know, and leaving my, my entire life over there and coming over and just so much to do in, in both countries. So we attended the, um, the results, I don't know what they call it, of the appeal. And apparently everybody there already knew the result. Everybody that is except us, we didn't know. And um, the appeal was refused. Three high court judges refused it. But not only that, they actually said 
that this man had had a Kalashnikov rifle. A Kalashnikov. Barry had had a little plastic gun that fired red pellets. And three high court judges managed to turn that into a Kalashnikov rifle. And even though the media had been through all the trial just the same as I had, and they knew that wasn't true, of course, this was great news and they all ran with it, you know, off to their newspapers to tell the world that Barry had a Kalashnikov rifle. So this is the way these things can go. So on the 5th of November, um, 2002, somebody from Mojo came with me to the CCRC in Birmingham. And it was Mojo actually, um, Hazel at the time, who had written the submission that we were going to put in to the Criminal Cases Review Commission on Barry's behalf. Um, I couldn't have written such a thing. I didn't have enough knowledge to do that. But thankfully, Hazel did it and we submitted it. In December of 2002, Barry was, Barry's case was before the House of Lords. He had said to me, I was not to go anywhere near the CCRC. I was not to talk to Mojo. I was not to do anything because his legal team were going to take him to the House of Lords and everything would be sorted out. and He'd be home for Christmas. Well, the House of Lords refused his application. They said no. And they said that, you know, the case was safe and they refused him any further right to mount another appeal. Well, thankfully, Mojo had done that submission. And that actually meant that we already were ahead of, of this because we were starting to get ready for the next appeal. Sadly, in November 2007, back home in Ireland, I was there at the time, my first husband, Pat, died. And he never knew that Barry um, actually won his appeal and that there was going to be a retrial. Sad, really, because he obviously he'd followed this right from the start. Um, so we went for the retrial, or at least we went to the retrial. Again, that was me backwards and forwards from Ireland to the UK. Um, and the retrial went all the way to the jury and the jury came back with a unanimous not guilty verdict. Um, so then we, of course, the next step after that is you go for your compensation. Eight years in prison, you know, you shouldn't have been there. The jury know you shouldn't have been there because they found you unanimously not guilty. Barry got nothing. And he still has nothing. And he will never be given anything unless certain laws are changed. The first thing they did was they told him he was not innocent enough. He had a retrial. And that meant there was evidence against him. And the way that they put it was a jury properly directed could have convicted. There was no presumption of innocence in there. Also, 
he was told, you have not proven your innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, I think we all know that it is for the prosecution to prove guilt and not for a defendant to prove their innocence. But he was told all the way through from the very first trial, all the way through to the retrial. You as the defendant have nothing to prove. So therefore he didn't try to prove anything. His legal team didn't try to prove that he was innocent, just that he couldn't have done it. And the jury believed that. So at the end of all of this, when Barry cannot take his evidence and go to another court, there's no, there's no way to do that. You can't just say to the, to the justice system, oh, you said I haven't proven my innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, let's go to court and I'll prove it to you because I've got my evidence. There's no such court. So they wait until you have no recourse and then they tell you that you should have proven something. Of course, that's impossible. The, you know, the problem is the justice system is doing this to loads of people. Barry was the first, and now they are doing it to loads of people, telling them they should have proven their innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. The only way that you can prove is if the perpetrator who actually carried out the crime is brought to justice. Otherwise, it's very similar to the Scottish system. Not guilty doesn't mean innocent. Not guilty means they couldn't prove anything against you. That's all. So Barry was freed. And in my book, I, I have written a book. I'm sure a few of you know about that. It's, it's called um, Not Innocent. Sorry, oh, I'm getting tired. Sorry. It's called Stand Against Injustice. And um, it tells a lot more. It goes into what the media did, how the police behave, other cases, how the justice system works or doesn't work. Um, but of course, here we come full circle and we're back to Jeremy because Jeremy and Barry were in Whitemore prison at the same time. They may even have been in Belmarsh at the same time, I'm not sure. But we do know that we could see Jeremy across the visiting room when we went to see Barry. And of course, being so connected to Jeremy's case, I couldn't not recognize who he was. So it was probably in about 2010 when Barry was sort of settled because it's very difficult to settle. Um, I contacted Jeremy's solicitor and I said, look, if I could, I'd like to help. If there's any way that I can be of assistance, I'd like to help. And he put me in touch with the campaign. Well, I spoke to Trudy at that time, who explained to me how things were done. And I liked what I heard. So later I became a patron. Um, the way I felt was, it's really important to try and give something back. We'd gotten through this, maybe not fully through, but we had gotten through, Barry was free. And it was important that we try to do something if we could. Now, 
just to let you know, Barry is still in Ireland because of the way the media and the police treated him after he was released. I had to actually rescue him from the country of his birth and take him to Ireland where they understand miscarriage of justice a whole lot better. Um, in two, yeah, 2013, I had already met and I then married a lovely man called Peter. So I now live in the UK. And during this period, I wrote my book, Stand Against Injustice, and it was released in 2018. As to the title, well, I know a lot of people know that I'm a Christian and I pray. And I asked God right in the middle of this whole nonsense that was going on with Barry, God, what is it you want me to do? Because I don't know anything about the justice system. And I heard God say to me, stand. Well, my reaction to that was, hey, come on, you're going to have to be a little bit clearer than that. You know, I'm not that clever. I don't know what you mean. But he said to me, I want you to stand up for your brother. I would like you to stand in front of your family. And that was me being the matriarch. Thanks, I didn't really want that. And he said, I want you to stand against injustice. And I thought, oh, okay, um, if that's what I gotta do, that's what I'll do. So it came to the writing of the book and I thought, well, I've mentioned other cases. Do I mention Jeremy in the book? Because as most of the people today will know, everyone who talks about Jeremy gets vilified. You can, you can be you know, humiliated because you're just stupid and you're mocked. And also the trolls, the trolls are awful. And I thought, well, do I really want that? And so again, I went back to God and I said, what do I do, God? And he said, didn't I tell you to stand against injustice? So then I knew I did have to put something in the book about Jeremy, and I did. And I did get a little bit of, you know, I, got, I think I got two people who said, I can't quite understand why you're doing that. But at least I didn't get too much more. Well, apart from the trolls, and they have a full website set up, set up where they um, uh, talk about me being some sort of terrible person and um, about Jeremy, who's a terrible person and all these miscarriage of justice campaigners who are terrible people. And I just realized if they want to spend their lives writing about me or any of the rest of us, that's fine, let them do that. I don't have to spend my life reading what they write. So I have just blocked them all on every platform and I don't read them anymore. And I definitely don't talk to them. I do not feed trolls. So just as I'm finishing off here, I'll let you know a little bit. Two of my children actually wrote a chapter in my book. They wanted to talk about what they remembered and, and what happened for them. And I'm really grateful because it, the book is about a family. It isn't about Barry or Barry being in prison. I couldn't write Barry's story 
you know, I wasn't in the prison with him. I could only write what happened to us on the outside. And that's what I did. So the, the two of them wrote their chapters. Um, the other daughter, she allowed her Christian testimony to be used in the book where um, her father eventually came to know the Lord as well. So she, she gave me that. And really, you know, adversity has really shaped my children. They do not suffer fools gladly and neither will any of them bow down to injustice, no matter who's doing it, it could be the police and they will stand up against them. They will not accept injustice. And I have to say, I am so proud of them. So I'm, I'm just at the end now. I would just like to apologize if it was a bit disjointed. It's really hard to put 35 years into a short presentation. And of course, there was so much more that I would have liked to share with you. But you know, tonight, a few other people are gonna speak as well. So I'm gonna end it there. And um, just thank uh, again, Philip and Yvonne for um, allowing me to come on and to talk to you and to share what I remembered about the night of those awful killings at White House Farm. It's important we remember that night because if Jeremy was outside, how could he have killed someone inside? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michelle. That, that Thank you, fascinating insights. Uh, we, we really appreciate that. Uh, can I just say, this is Michelle's book, so I think it's on Amazon and all the book publishers, so it's an excellent read. So if anyone yeah. wants to say it and see Michelle's struggle, about her family's struggle, then you need to get this book. Yes. As I was saying, Jeremy's very fortunate to have the advice and help of somebody such as herself who's been through this process and won. Uh, that, that's an invaluable addition to the, what, what the campaign is doing. So we, we really appreciate your <laughs> efforts on his behalf. Uh, now, if, um, Michelle's kindly agreed to take a few questions if anybody'd like to ask her anything specific. Uh, so if you do, if you could unmute yourself and uh, make yourself known. Yep, who's that? Emma, go ahead. So Michelle, that was that was really interesting and really emotional. Thank you for that. I, yeah, I can't imagine what you and your family went through, especially obviously Barry. Just you know, you're saying he didn't get any compensation. So I'm just interested. Is he okay now? I mean, is he is he safe, financially secure? He lives on his benefits. You know, he still gets his benefits because he'll never work. He can't work. He is mentally disabled. Um, and especially with the brain damage, you know, if he had to go to work, well, he'd forget about it. He'd just forget to go. Or he'd go two hours too early, or he'd come to two days too late. You know, all of those things actually were used against him in his trial. His disabilities oh were God. used against him. It's, it's horrendous because, you know, I, I, I thought you, you have a miscarriage of justice. They come out and then they get given millions and millions of pounds. To hear he got nothing, that's right. He got nothing just It's just horrendous. Yeah. And in fact, um, the, there are two others. They were, the, I think the next two after him um, was Sam Hallam 
And I mean, we know Sam Hallam is totally innocent. They have all the evidence they need for that. But he has fallen under the same thing, as has um, Victor Nealon. They have taken it to Europe, and I think we're waiting for news on that, but maybe somebody else can uh, might know a bit more about that than I do. But it's, it's the same thing, it, and they're using it against almost everybody who is now released. You didn't prove your innocence beyond a reasonable doubt, therefore you don't get compensation. Did, um, did Barry uh, get any sort of apology or anything? No, not in the slightest. In fact, last year, the BBC did um, what was supposed to be a commemoration programme um, about Giordando. And in fact, it started out that way. It was good. It was lovely, the part about the um, commemoration of Jill. But then they gave the second half of the programme to an ex-police officer to explain why Barry was the only person that they went looking at you know, there was no one else to look at. So in other words, they don't, you know, he, he's not innocent. Even though they stated he was innocent. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Oh dear. Helen, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I'm finding this all rather confusing. I think probably like most people, because my understanding of the justice system is that you're innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and that if you're, you know, basically if they consider that the retrial is that beyond reasonable doubt they couldn't find him guilty, you're basically innocent. And in that yeah. instance, why was he, he should have been exonerated? So I'm slightly confused, really, I suppose, as to what English law actually means. They changed yeah. the thing. They brought in some law. I think it was in 2011 or 2012. Um, there were nine high court judges who all met together to discuss what is a miscarriage of justice. Four people stood against um, bringing this in, this you need to prove your innocence beyond reasonable doubt. Four stood against it and five went with it. And so therefore it was carried. And so in 2011 or 12, that's when it came in. Because that's concerning then for Jeremy, because if, I suppose the argument with that then is that the only way, like you said, to prove it is to prove who else did it. Now, I suppose, logically, then, if he didn't do it, then it presumably would pass to say, well, obviously, Sheila did it. But if she's not able to defend herself, which obviously she isn't, it does beg the question whether he will be able to be able to clear his name in the same way. Yeah, that concerns me greatly because, um, I mean, Jeremy should be, I mean, everybody who is wrongfully in prison should at least get some help to yeah. set up their lives. Yeah. But Jeremy, of all people, he lost everything, his whole inheritance. You know, he, he, he'll come out to nothing. And that's devastating. And it definitely isn't what he deserves. But I'm afraid it's the way the justice system is now. And if this isn't turned overturned um, at the European Court of Human Rights, it will continue that way. In yeah. fact, uh, Yvonne and I went to a lecture by Mark Newby, uh, Jeremy's solicitor recently, where he was talking about this. And he said there are now four categories um, for miscarriages of justice. As Michelle said, it's, they sort of sliced the whole subject up into layers. Um, but as Helen pointed out, it's, it's a binary choice of a trial. You know, you're either guilty or you're not guilty. 
So that this really does go against the fundamentals of the justice system. Uh, the damning phrase that you know is now so shamefully uh, associated with Barry of not being innocent enough, and that that is just fundamentally unfair and against the basic tenets of the justice system. So you know that that's something I'm sure Jeremy will be keen to campaign on. You know, as and when he gets out. Absolutely, because you know what what myself and Barry will say is that they brought in a law that is actually illegal there's no standing in law for what they are doing if they're not going to give you the opportunity to actually go back into court you know with the evidence then how on earth can it be legal that they can do this with barry he has the evidence which proves that he was someplace else when jill was killed and he has witnesses to that. The jury at the second trial, at the retrial, they understood this and they found him not guilty. Yeah. He, there's no court in our land where he can go with this evidence and say, here I am, you said I'm not innocent enough, well, I'm here to prove that I was somewhere else. And in fact, the logical conclusion of this is that if there are four shades of innocence, there should be four shades of guilt as well. Now, obviously in Scotland, they do have a second shade of the verdict of not proven. Um, so that they do allow for that, but there's only two of those uh, categories, as it were, as opposed to four, which would be the natural balance against four shades of innocence. So the whole, whole thing is Alice in Wonderland, really. It's all just money. And also, I mean, I don't know, how many people will have heard of Lord Denning? Lord Denning was one of the High Court judges. And at the time of the Birmingham Six, what he said was, if the Birmingham Six, and he meant all of them, including the Guildford Four and all of the others, if they had been hung, they wouldn't have been able to bring the justice system into disrepute. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're concerned about. Um, as Michael Mansfield has said before, any system that thinks in that way has no integrity to protect in the first place. So, no. you know, I mean, I, I remember when I was younger, Lord Denning was always held up as a sort of paragon of protecting citizens' rights and or, or on the side of the small guy. But in fact, he, he was the exact opposite. Uh, his comments that Michelle's just referenced there show that and various other things he did as well. <coughs> So uh, the judiciary has a lot to, uh, to answer for in these situations. Well, one of the things that I put in my book is that the system needs to be looked at. Yes. But what we need to understand is the system is not a computer. It is people. And if those people are not willing to look at the system and make the changes needed, then it's never going to change. Yeah. Right, any other quick questions? Because we must press on with, uh, with Yvonne um, and Steve. Yeah, can I ask a question as well, please? Yep, Ian, go ahead. It is, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, sorry, I've got a really bad reception here. I'm in a hotel room. Just a quick question for Michelle uh, about her uh, brother. Obviously, I remember the whole, Jill Dandall was a. Uh, national treasure in this country. So it was big news every night, the court case and everything with Barry. 
know, I remember it really well. I remember thinking, obviously, the guy is guilty. I had the same thing about Jeremy as well, obviously, because the news just feeds you that. There was never any doubt as far as the media were concerned. Obviously, everything come to light, and Michelle knew his innocence all along. And there's also the stories of Jill Dandor was on to all the paedophilia at the BBC. We'll not go into that, but I just wanted to ask Michelle if she had any anything. Has she got any suspects in mind? Because she must have looked at the case. The way she's looked into the whole Jeremy case, just interested in all that, really. Yeah, I suppose. I don't really. One of the things that I did was I refused to go looking for who might actually be the person who did it. And the reason for that was because I had three children and I did not want to invite some nasty person to come along and decide to take it out on, on my family because I was digging too far. And anyway, that's the police's job. But also last year, there was an ITV program on the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of Jill's murder. And in that one, they found a piece of evidence that we knew nothing about, but it was hidden in the files, Barry's files, and they found it. They already knew that two phone calls came to the BBC um, the day after the killing and the day after that. They apparently had Eastern European accents and they said, well, you know, the reason that we did this was because of Tony Blair and what he did in, in, in um, Serbia. And, you know, that was fine. We, we knew about those two calls, but the police always said, you always get somebody coming on to say, um, we did this, to claim it on the day and nobody did. But the ITV program in the boxes of files, they found a document that said on the day of the murder, now, Jill was murdered sometime around 11.35 in the morning. And by three o'clock, this call had come in to say, we did this and we did it because of your prime minister and there are more to come. And um, we still don't know, was it Serbian or wasn't it? We don't know that. But... We do know that three times somebody came and claimed that this had been done. And I think the ITV uh, programme also pointed out that journalists had been killed the week before in Serbia, hadn't they? That's right, in yeah. the same way. So there, there was supporting evidence for that, uh, that view. Yes. All right, well, thank you again, Michelle. That was absolutely fascinating. We really enjoyed that. Michelle, you were wonderful.